0: Good morning. So what I thought I'd talk about today is, um, well, I'll get to the topic in just a minute because it's a weird title. Carlo Rinpoche said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. He said a lot more to that quote, but that's where I want to begin. The appearance of things. So, for instance, let's take a flower being that I'm a gardener. So there's flower. We may even recognize rose. And what we see is form and color. And we keep looking and we see nuances of color and we see layers and layers. And we begin, if we keep looking closely, we see bracts and petals and stamen and pistil and pollen and seeds and shimmeriness or sheeniness or fuzziness or we start to see points or rounds, layers. We'll see um, all symmetry, subtlety. We call it flower, but there's a lot in there. But we live in the illusion and the appearance of things. We don't usually see all that stuff. We don't usually look that closely and see the detail. We see the appearance, the mirage. And then we live accordingly. If it's a pleasant one, we go towards it. And if it's an unpleasant one, we avoid it or something. And We do this with everything. We don't take the time. We don't have the time to get into the fine detail of what everything is, but we miss most of what is. And we see what we think it is, the appearance of things. And the Buddha is teaching us that when we do this, when we live on the level of the appearance of things, we're not really seeing what's going on. And so then we aren't actually able to live wisely or appropriately because we're somewhat blinded, only superficial. And furthermore, he said, that um, if we can see what's really in here, not just the appearance of what would seem to be to be a person, but what really is here being a person, then we will not function inappropriately anymore. We will not be able to function inappropriately, to be reactive, to be upset, to struggle, because we'll see how we work inside. We won't see the appearance of ourselves as a thing either if we look closely. So he said, look at yourself. I mean, look at flowers all you like and so on, but actually look at yourself because your response and your what you make of all the various appearances of things is how you create your life and how you create your well-being or not. So his approach was to look beneath the appearance of things, the non-superficial. So when you look at yourself, which is mostly what he suggested you do, look beneath the appearance of yourself. Take yourself apart into the pieces which is there for you, the way I just described a rose. So this talk is about what we see when we take ourselves apart. Now remember that when the uh, teachings of the Buddha were first translated into our language, they were, uh, it was translated in an era of the... Great expansion of the British Empire with a Victorian moralistic scholarly language. And so the words that were initially used to translate the Pali language had sort of overtones, which we don't use a lot today. So some of the words I find gag making. <laughs> and this one is, and it's the word aggregates. And I just don't relate to the word aggregates. The, uh, when, I see, when I think of something, I see pictures, and it's way my mind works. When I see the word aggregate, I see little piles of pebbles and stones and dust. Well, I cannot relate to being little piles of pebbles and stones and dust. So I don't, I can't use that word. And I don't know, I mean, we're stuck with that word because there isn't really... Not to say not a better word, but they're all not quite the right word. But, for instance, components is a word meaning the bits and pieces that create something. I think of that as sort of electronic devices, basically, <laughs> and, but a little more alive than aggregates. Um, I don't know, strands. When you think of a weaving, the warp and the woof of the weaving, that actually when you, when you look close to what, you know, a, piece, a woven piece of cloth, you start to see the various threads, so maybe threads. When you think of an instrument, when I think of an instrument, like, say, a violin, I suppose I would use the word. what are the components of the violin when you look really closely? You know, it's this amazing music making, but when you look closely, there are strings and there are, you know, under a certain amount of tension, there is the touching, there's resonance boxes. Is it the components of the violin? That's a reasonable word, I think, components. Strands, streams, threads, pieces, parts. Nothing wrong with the word parts. Okay. Let's go with parts. (laughs) The five parts of being a person. So there are five of them. The way the Buddha taught this. So now I want you to imagine that we're doing an experiment together. Imagine that you're among friends, which you don't have to imagine because you are already, but let's imagine that you're in a small group of friends and you're going to play a game where you are blindfolded and your friend gives you a plate and a spoon of something, and, your blindfold, and you're blindfolded, and you're supposed to spoon this something into your mouth and take a bite of it. And you're among friends, so you don't have to feel that this is poison or gravel or something. This is actually something reasonable. So, we're going to unpack the experience of eating something, of taking a spoonful of something. So, your eyes are closed, you don't know what it is yet. You have the. Um, There's the two pieces of the physical part of this. There is whatever's in this spoon, the stuff, going into your eating apparatus. Eating apparatus, this orifice with a tongue along the edge of which are millions of taste buds, a little underneath a taste buds, not so many taste buds on the surface of the tongue, by the way. There are the teeth which can crush and crunch. There is a salivary glands which produce the juice to make the whole thing become gooey. There's the ability of the tongue to push the stuff up and down in the mouth, to keep pushing it into between the teeth so it gets chopped up and to shove it back and make it go down the throat. This is all your, your taste apparatus. Taste apparatus doesn't taste anything until there's something to taste. So the combination of this spoonful of whatever it is, we don't know what it is yet, and this apparatus in the mouth is number one of the five parts of you being a person. In relation in this particular case to the taste part. We'll do the five senses in a minute, but we're starting with tasting. So then you feel with your tongue, whatever this thing is. It's several pieces of something or other. It's dry. It's crunchy. It's light. It doesn't have a lot of taste. It's not that sweet. It's not that salty. It's not that sour. But you recognize it has something and then you go cornflakes. you have found that it's relatively pleasant. So you haven't spat it out yet. It's okay. Sort of benign and pleasant and crunchy with these various other aspects of it. So there's two and three happening now. Number one was the apparatus. Number two is the whether it's disgusting and you spit it out or not. And it's pleasant enough. Number three is cornflakes. It's crunchy. It's light. It's Salty or not salty, sweet or not sweet, sour or not sour, mushy or gooey or whatever, slimy. That's the, the mind that's cognizing what it is. In this case, recognizing what it is, because you've had cornflakes before, so you actually even recognize that. But you've, you've felt all those little bits and pieces to be able to say cornflakes. That's the third one. The fourth one is, what do you do about it? Do you crunch it with relish? Do you crunch it rapidly? Do you wolf it down and go for more? Do you spit it out? What do you do with it? Do you savor it in your mouth for ages, that it gets softer and softer? That's the fourth one. What do you do about it? And then the fifth one is that you're actually knowing what you're doing. And I'm making this a little experiment that pretending you were blindfolded, because when you're blindfolded, you're really... Paying attention to what you're doing. You're really wanting to know what is this? Is this actually okay to keep swallowing? What's going on here? So there's a lot of application of consciousness to the process. That's the fifth one. Let's do that with hearing. When there's a sound. no, I'm going to go to smelling next. When there's a smell. There's the smell and there's your apparatus. The olfactory apparatus in this case then usually we can notice, if we look at this, that there's pleasant or unpleasantness. That's the most important thing about smell for us. When we think of responding to smell, when we notice a smell, we don't usually notice things because they're not that strong of smell. But when they are, almost always, what matters to us is if we like it or we don't. If it's like, hmm, coffee. Where's the coffee shop? Or, you know, a flower. Or that, phew, that really stinks. Maybe this, you know, the gas was left on in the kitchen. It's, that's okay or not okay. It's almost always food or poison is what's being registered in the nose, pleasant or unpleasant. We may well then be able to name it, oh coffee, oh gas, whatever. And we'll then decide if we want to open the window or go around the corner to the coffee shop. That will be the motivation. We usually aren't aware that we're doing that, but there is an awareness that we're thinking. If we, if we didn't have any consciousness for smelling, we wouldn't, it wouldn't affect what we do, obviously. So there, it's there, even though we don't pay attention to the fifth part, the consciousness part. Hearing. People negotiate this world relatively okay, even if they don't have a very good sense of smell. It affects their tasting, but on the whole, it isn't a huge impact. It is huge about eating. Like, you know, this is food or poison several times a day. We have to really be attuned to this one. This is big for us. Hearing, people negotiate relatively easily without hearing. I mean, you know, we need hearing aids and stuff like this, signs. But on the whole, we can function most of the time with a relatively impaired hearing. We Therefore, all I'm saying is we don't pay a lot of attention to our hearing. We screen an awful lot out. We live, most of us, in a world where there's way more noise than ever we used to have as humans. And so we don't even pay attention. We deliberately dis, we ignore a lot of it because it's too overwhelming. It's just like irritant. But the same process is going on. The hearing apparatus, the sound that's coming there, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. (coughs) If it's pleasant, we tend to register it. Oh, there's a song of a bird. We hear the sound, then we think, bird. It's part of the step of it. Pleasant. Oh, we notice that. Often we don't notice and tune it out if it's unpleasant. And so on. Then we'll come to sight. What happens with our sight? Because we're mobile and because we negotiate our way through this world of forms, we are using our sight all the time so that we don't crash and bump into everything. So we are constantly as we move. And we, we don't look around so much when we're sitting, we just look at the one thing that occupies us usually. But in, and when we're mobile, we're completely engaged in not crashing. And so we're looking at objects, objects, objects all the time. We're not noticing whether they're pleasant or unpleasant. or w- We'll notice what they are, but we tend to not so easily. And I'm just unpacking the senses because just, I just found it fascinating to explore this. We don't realize we're doing looking because we do it all the time so much that we just get so normal for us to do. Like the fish doesn't notice the sea it's swimming in because it's happening all the time. But there is actually the same five things going on when we're looking. We have the visual, whatever the stimulus is, the stuff, the shadow, the shade, the form, the color, the visual apparatus, optic nerves. Actually, it's very peculiar what goes on. I mean, it just is like little waves of light go and they go through the retina and hit the back of the eyeball and turn upside down and then get registered as car. It's very peculiar how it all works. It's very not what it would appear when you take that apart, but we don't go there usually. But even not on such a subtle level, there is the apparatus, so there's the number one, number two. If it's pleasant or unpleasant, well, it'll take our attention, you know, one way or the other. They'll be recognizing it. Oh yes, end of pavement, better step down here, help us negotiate recognition. Then there's what we do, better step down here, better not fall off the edge of the sidewalk here, you know, better adjust my step here, better come up, move here so I don't walk into the tree, how it makes us function. And then the consciousness of it all. So these are this is the way we function, right? This um, also works internally. We don't even see all this part, but we have thoughts. Thoughts are happening constantly. Same process is happening. Thoughts are going on. The faculty that thinks is happening, whether they're interesting thoughts and fascinating thoughts, pleasant thoughts, and we keep thinking more of them in the same thought train or not. We don't usually recognize that we're thinking. The cognition of thinking we don't. We just are so in the thinking, rather like we're so in the, the looking, we don't realize we're doing it because we do it all the time. We don't realize we're thinking all the time. We're not recognizing thinking a lot of the time. We're not recognizing worrying, worrying. Oh, more worrying. Oh, yes. Very interesting. Worrying, worrying. We're just in it without seeing it. So the thing about this is because we do this all the time, this is how we function all the time. When we we don't look closely and clearly, we don't see how we're functioning. So just even describing this little process, I'm pointing to the ability that we have to start taking apart all these pieces and see how they work and see which of them we can notice. We can notice all five for all six sense doors if we look closely enough. We can notice the ones that we don't notice. We can realize, oh, I've always missed that. I never really pay attention to that part of it. That alone is an interesting experiment, interesting exploration. The point of this is that we, because we don't see the detail of what's going on, we certainly don't see what we don't see. We are functioning in the illusion. We are functioning on just the appearance level of what's going on and not really seeing what's going on. And by that, because of that, we are caught in a dream, we're deluded, we're functioning in illusion rather than reality. And the only way we'll ever become free and what we really want and why we're all here and what we care about is how to not keep getting caught in the same old reactions to things, to get irritated by things to believe that things matter when we know that they actually don't. We're actually struggling with our illusion. We're struggling with our ignorance. The way to get free of the struggle that keeps us going through the same old trouble over and over is is to start taking it apart. And then we aren't so oblivious. We're not on automatic. We're not going through things without realizing, why on earth am I finding myself here yet again, surely? I know better than that. You know that little, I'm sure you've heard this many a time, quoted the little, um, the description of becoming more conscious. I can't remember, I don't have the quote with me, but um, I don't even know the title of it. Something in five short chapters. I walk down a street, there is a big hole in the sidewalk, I fall in. You know this one? Mm -hmm. You don't know this one? Some of you do. I'm going to say it, paraphrase it. Walk down the sidewalk, there's a big hole, I fall in. I didn't know it was there. It wasn't my fault. I get out as fast as I can. Number one. Chapter two. I walk down the hole. I walk down the sidewalk. There's a hole in the sidewalk. Still the same hole. I fall in again. I didn't realize it was there. Um, It's not my fault. First one was it wasn't my fault. Second one, it was my fault. I climb out as fast as I can. Third one, I walk down the sidewalk, there's a hole. Um, I fall in the hole. I knew it was there. I just was oblivious. I climb out as fast as I can. It was absolutely my fault. The fourth one, I walk down the the sidewalk, there's a hole. I walk around the hole. I'm really learning here. (laughs) Fifth one, I walk down a different street. Well, we're trying to walk down different streets. We're trying to not keep finding ourselves in the same old hole over and over and over. <laughs> and so how we do it is we have to actually see oh yes as a whole. If I don't negotiate this wisely, I will yet again find myself back in the fight with the partner or whatever it is that we keep falling ourselves finding ourselves falling into. So So the Buddha used the word enchanted or entranced meaning, you know, it, it deluded in the dream, not really seeing, not seeing how we get caught, not seeing how we keep falling into these holes. So uh, we keep, un, you know, uh, just over and over not clear. This is why we try and take ourselves apart and see what's going on here. Um, these five parts of how we function when seen, this is where it gets really interesting. First of all, those those five things are happening, you know, like just flash, 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 flash. When we start taking them apart, the very interesting bit is actually between number two and number four. I would have put number two at number three myself, but I'm not the Buddha. Number one is the physical, the thing that actually happens, the taste. Let's go to the cornflakes one. Number two is the vedana, pleasant or unpleasant. Number three is cognition. Cornflakes, crunchy, like that. Number four is relish it, swallow it or spit it out. Two, pleasant or unpleasant. Four, relish it or spit it out. The Buddha, it's extraordinary when you think about this because it seems like why would you bother with separating out pleasant and unpleasant from salty, crunchy food? But the Buddha separated out what actually it is and whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. The same way when the Buddha taught the four foundations of mindfulness. There is the you know, physical awareness, being mindful of the body in its all different many ways. Then there is pleasant or unpleasant, vedna. Then there is mind states. And then there is the dharmas, the real truths of things. Those are the four foundations of mindfulness. Separated separate out, pleasant or unpleasant. And the same thing in the aggregates or the parts of yourself it out, pleasant or unpleasant, because the fourth one, after you've now recognized its cornflakes, what you're going to do about it is governed by that second one, pleasant or unpleasant. If you get to see that it's pleasant or unpleasant, then you will have some choice about whether or not you go for it or you don't, or you struggle with it, that fourth one. The fourth one, what you do about it, is where we actually function. The other is happening. The mind recognizes the conflicts. It's then the decision how am I going to behave? That's the part that is our contribution to the world. That's what, that's where our free will, call it, that's where our will comes in. Now, a lot of our will isn't free because a lot of what happens is automatic. But we do, if we're conscious, have some choice at that point. That's the only point. And the choice we make is based on whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, most of the time. So those two, to know that it's pleasant or unpleasant, will help us decide how we're going to function. And how we function is our responsibility in our life. That's the piece, the fourth piece, the motivation, the sankhara, the action, the creation. That's where the apparent we get to do something. That's where our karma is sown. The seeds of our karma are sown right there in number four. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: little story about perception number three. Just a little story. A man called Oliver Sacks, neurologist, psychiatrist, English. There was a patient, he was really interested in perception. And uh, he had a patient and he was a surgeon, too, and he did various things. And one of the things that uh, happened was there was a patient he had who had um, been born with full faculties and had become blind as a little child and was now in his middle age and was going to have an operation, which they now were able to do with the advance of technology, to repair his lost sight. And so they did whatever this operation was. And then the bandages were on and Oliver Sacks was by his side, And when they removed the bandages so he could now see, having not been able to see for something like 50 years, but having been able to see as a child, so he had previously known how to see. And um, they took off the bandages, and he just has this sort of bewildered look on his face, and his eyes are, you know, open, scanning. And then Oliver Sacks speaks and says, what can you see? Can you see? I'm dying to ask this question, whole point. And at that point, he sort of swims his eyes over towards Oliver Sachs's face, who's looking right at him, who's right in front of him, and makes out gradually the form of the face. But he didn't know it was Oliver Sachs's face initially, because he, he just hadn't seen for so many years, he couldn't could do it. And he could make out this pink form, but he was very troubled by this. He had not used these nerves and stuff for all of these years, and now... He found it such a strain and such a trouble to try and make sense of the forms that he actually couldn't do it. And he spent what what left of his life not looking because it was too confusing for him. Part of this is I've been reading a book about um, how the whole neuroscientist of neuroplasticity and how the mind actually the various uh, cells of the mind grow and function and when they're impaired, how they work and so on and how actually Um, you can have certain cells of the brain growing different faculties than they normally would be given. You know, if somebody for it like this, you know, if one of their senses is impaired, then they can actually make up for it with using cells that normally wouldn't do that, wouldn't listen, now actually grow listening. Cells of sight can actually become able to listen, for instance. And so part of this must have happened in his brain because it had been so many years. But his perception... Um, that particular faculty of sight perception didn't work for him. And so it it was just an interesting thing to throw in here about how we we assume so much about perception and it isn't what we we assume a lot of the time. It actually, according to somebody, I spoke to somebody who was an optician, told this story and he said yes, and what they don't tell you the story is that actually it was disturbing so badly for him that he eventually committed suicide because he couldn't function. It was just, it scrambled his perception so badly that he couldn't function. So, you know, here we are, I think we're doing a favor, you know, trying our best. But our perception is a delicate thing. The Buddha taught that what we to do with, when we look at ourselves and analyze in this way, investigate, not analyze, but just investigate what you're perceiving, is this is, the, this is how we do this is to notice how these different components of ourselves, parts of ourselves, function. And to notice not just how they function, but to notice how they're coming and going. This is very interesting. The advice is to see how this isn't a solid me here. This is a faculty that's coming and going. So there is the impact of whatever the thing, and there is the reaction in these different there's the physical, and then the four mental responses. Watch how they come and how they go. Watch how it changes all the time. This is what his advice to us. Because when we do this, we break the illusion that we are a solid thing. The illusion is that I exist, and I'm a permanent existing thing until I die. Like for my length of my life, there's some solid personness here. The point of this whole exercise, this whole idea of looking at these components of yourself, is to see that that isn't actually true. And it's very interesting and um, there are times where different ones of us in our practice have seen and it's possible to see, and you can't make yourself see, but it's interesting if you look. You can see, for instance, that in the moment of seeing something, there is the seeing and there is consciousness that you're seeing. And then when the thing you're seeing is no longer being seen, the consciousness of seeing disappears. And then there's a new sight and a new consciousness of seeing that comes and goes. And hearing, there's a sound, and you're conscious of the sound, and the sound goes, and your consciousness of hearing, it goes. You can actually see your consciousness of hearing. doesn't mean your total consciousness, you're, a, you're actually a human who's conscious. I'm not talking about the general true nature, awareness, but the actual consciousness that's tied up with the hearing or the seeing or the tasting the cornflakes is all the time coming and going. And you start to see how what you thought of as your permanence isn't. This is why the Buddha is teaching this. When we can see we're not permanently anything, even though the appearance is that we are, then we don't believe in ourselves. We don't have that same identification with being somebody. We see that we're simply a response that's, that's happening automatically, naturally. And a little piece in there, we get to make a bit of choice about what we do. But that just ends all the time. Comes and goes, comes and goes, rapidly, rapidly. And when that is seen, it's actually, that's liberation. We're liberated from the illusion that we are something that has to have certain things and that mustn't have certain things and it's not really how it is. We see more truly how we are when we look more closely. This ability to see yourself coming apart It's kind of weird sometimes. It can be. It's sometimes for some people start to see how there isn't anything as solid as they thought it was. It can be scary for a while because we actually like our illusion because it's so familiar and comfortable. But it actually is such a relief. It's such a relief not to have to take ourselves so seriously. When we take ourselves so seriously, it's really heavy. That's Because we take it so seriously, that's when we get so upset, that's when we get so afraid, that's when we get angry, that's when we get hot and bothered and stressed out and oh my God, because we take it all so seriously. And when we start taking ourselves less seriously, because we see that it's actually not what is we thought it was so solid, then it's more fun, then it's more light, then we don't get so upset, we don't get so embarrassed, we don't get so caught up with the whole status thing and what people think of you and all of that. That just gets less and less. That is fantastic. The Buddha called this, being able to see this, see through the illusion of your sense of yourself and not take yourself seriously. This is called his lion's roar. This is where he most profoundly and loudly proclaimed enlightenment through this actual practice of taking apart the sense of self. This is what those who are seeking true liberation, where you can look and where you can see and where you can be freed. Amazing. That's a huge claim. The lion's roar. Ute Jania, as you know, who I studied with last Fall and again this spring, describes it. Uh, first of all, he um, I was talking to a young man in the monastery in, uh, in Burma. And I asked him to tell me about Utegenia and just tell me his background and everything. And I so, wish I had no idea about this person. So he told me his story as a young person. He'd only been a monk for the last 12 or 13 years. And he'd lived as a lay person and been married and had a child and drunk lots of alcohol and, you know, been a bit of a partier and had, you know, depression and all the normal things that we've dealt with in life. So not a monk his whole life very interested in psychology, very interested in what made his mind work, who is this person, always very interested in this exploration himself, and that he had quite a profound experience that was a big spiritual opening when he was in his late 20s. This is what this young man in the monastery was telling me. Then later, with Utejani himself, he described a moment of experience of his, his, um, which to him was really quite meaningful. I think it was more meaningful than he let on. Like he wasn't saying I had this amazing, profound enlightenment experience. He didn't say that, but he did say, "I was coming home after work one day, and uh, and I was been really, I just was really wondering about what is it that makes a person a person, and how does this mind work?" And I was just thinking about it and thinking about it and going home and going home and had a shower and I was just finishing my shower, and um, I smelled the soap, and I realized in that moment that I didn't smell the soap that the nose smelled the soap, that there was no eye smelling. It was a nose that was able to receive the smell of the soap. For him, this moment was a huge moment. He got to experience not not being a person. He was totally excited. He started telling everybody, I didn't smell the soap, the, sm- the nose smelled the soap. And they were like, yes, yeah." So he went off and spoke to his teacher who was called Shui Umin. And Shui Umin said, don't tell people that, tell me that. <laughs> they won't understand. Because it doesn't sound like anything when you say, I didn't smell the soap. But he had his experience of realizing this is just a set of faculties firing because of stimulus. That's all that's happening. It's interesting to see. Can you see that? In a moment, That you can see this. There is this natural pile of gravel, whatever you want to call it component of being with all these faculties and senses and abilities that is firing off because of all the bombarding of stuff that's hitting us. That's all that's going on, coming and going, coming and going, coming and going. That's all that's here. It's possible to perceive this. It sounds odd when you put it in language, but it's perceivable. That's the whole point of the Buddhist teaching. Don't listen. Don't just hear words. Don't do it because we said it so. Don't say, oh yes, I believe that at all. Look for yourself. Look for yourself and see. Is this true for yourself? See when you're eating cornflakes next time. Watch the process. It's the most easy, I think, to notice with eating. Because we're actually paying attention to our eating. We're not noticing when we're looking. We're ignoring a lot of the hearing. We're caught up in a lot of the thinking. And we don't realize we're thinking. But any, take apart any of these and see for yourself. It's a doorway into Going beyond the appearance of yourself. Very interesting. I think that'll do. So um, I'm happy to take questions.
1: This question over there. Maria. Um, two questions, actually. Um, The first is when you talk about going from step two to step four, from realizing it's pleasant or unpleasant to deciding or having an action based on that, where does all that other stuff come in about where, you know, you you might choose to react in a certain way, not based on whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, but on, like, well, it's high calories, so I shouldn't eat it, or... um, If I do this, people will judge me, all that sort of stuff. I'm kind of wondering where that fits in, because it isn't often. It's not just whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. And the other is about. um, I just
0: answer that one first. Okay. no, carry on. Okay. well,
1: the other one is about touch, which is I was thinking when you were talking about vision, you know, they were always looking, but. Even even with walking, your, your sense of balance, your sense of your feet touching the ground. I, I kind of didn't hear that in the five aggregates, just the sort of general sense of touch and spatial awareness. Okay. What does that fit in? OK, so the first one,
0: two, three and four are all together. It is. It isn't. See for yourself, actually. There um, Are. Four, our choice of doing things is, as you say, quite rightly, more complicated than just, oh, it's pleasant, it's unpleasant. But when, if you look really closely at, um, for instance, the thing about eating, oh, this is high calories, then you may be caught between this is pleasant and tastes good, this is unpleasant because fatness is disapproved of. For instance, there's a right, Vedna actually, it it, it spills over into all kinds of things. So, So then why you actually make what the decision is, is the pleasant one wins out or the unpleasant wins out in that particular case. So it's there is more than just pleasant and unpleasant, but that is often associated with most things. So look closely and see if that's true for yourself. The, the, your other question about when you're walking, the whole thing about balance and negotiation. Yes, there, you know, there is the, that's the whole, um, the physical sense. There's, there are, there is sight, smell, taste, hearing, touch, and thinking. And I didn't do touch in my description of things. And so that would be the whole physical thing of the body, whether it's a mosquito bite, whether it's a, an itch, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, whether you kill the mosquito or whether you tolerate it or whether you kind and take it outside and flick it off gently, whatever, you know, you do. That's one more. I just didn't go through that other sense store, the sense store of touch. And the sense store of touch is the whole of the service and within the service of the body and all of that the body does. I just didn't go through that whole description. Forgive
1: me. A question um, over here. <laughs> uh, you you talked about the, uh, the the story with the, about the hole in the street. Yes. Yeah. I was found the fifth the fifth chapter a little jarring. Uh, I mean, there might be some good reason you're going down that street. Like sound from your example, sound like you might actually live on that street. Um, <laughs> w- what about <laughs> fix the hole? What about? Fix the hole.
0: Fix the hole. <laughs> mm, it's not very Buddhist to fix things. So, um,
1: <laughs> mm, I don't know what to say. <laughs>
0: I don't think I need to say. Do you really want me to say something? (laughs) I mean, really, ultimately, the choice is I don't need to keep going into where there's trouble. You know, I can do it a whole different way. I think going down different streets, like, that, that just speaks to the... never getting caught again, completely being free, not even needing to put myself in the territory of trouble. Enough. I'm not going to go further into that analogy. You make, it, make of it what you like. Anybody else?
1: Over here. Um, I'd like to ask you to uh, explain why it is not, or what the thinking behind it's not Buddhist to fix things.
0: Oh, <laughs> what did I do by <laughs> that? <laughs> We <laughs> oh, don't need to be recording on this. <laughs> um, yeah, my, that initial response is because then it's like we want to make it to suit us. You know, the, the whole idea of fixing things is so that it, so that I get what I want. Whereas the, the freedom isn't, in, isn't to make it the way I want it to be. It's to, is to be okay with what it is. It's the accommodating the truth of things rather than changing the truth to suit me. That's what I mean by that. And so that, you know, that... The illusion that if I have it my way, then I'll be happy, you know, that's all played into by fixing things. That's what I meant. I asked the question
1: in the context of being a person who has... I said I asked the question in the context of being someone who makes her living, fixing things for other people. So... (laughs)
0: You know, there, always remember this. This is this is such a valuable thing that um, there are these two two levels of reality running parallel. There is the the conventional reality, and there is the ultimate reality. And the conventional reality is the one where we live, and that we do need to to cho- choose that I want this, and I don't need that, and I need to have retirement funds, and I and so on and so forth. The ultimate reality is the the big picture that this is all stardust coming and going and that you don't actually exist as you. It's just a superficial appearance with a name and that, you know, really and truly this is just life manifesting in all these different forms. And we get all caught up with the superficial level of things. And so we need to hold both together. The ultimate view that this is an example, which I usually use here. is my right hand. This is Heather's right hand, Caucasian, 58 year old female hand. Full digits, few scars. It's also stardust. So it's just all the same matter that the rest of the cosmos is made of. It just happens a certain amount of it accumulates in a certain form to look like Heather's right hand. So they're both true. And what we need, what we do in our normal lives is we just relate to Heather's right hand and we forget the fact that actually it's part of Heather, which is part of humanity, which is part of cosmic reality on this particular planet, which is part of the cosmos. We forget that whole dimension. And so we are trapped in a small way of seeing. And the Buddha is trying to have us see the big picture. But he doesn't say this is not your right hand. This doesn't, you know, the hand doesn't exist. He says it, but it's both there. You need to relate to that as your right hand. And then your left hand will help it when it's hurt. You know, not just like let it go, But not just get attached to the smallness of what it is. So your job is to help people fix their various problems, whatever ways. And that's that's being in a relative level kind, using your expertise to benefit people and so on in the big picture everything's going to come and go, people are going to struggle, people are going to be happy, they're going to be sad, they're going to lose things, they're going to be ignorant, they're going to get wiser or not, that's what's going to happen in the big picture. So if we hold what we do in the big context, then we don't get so attached to having to have it work the way we want it to work, because sometimes it will, we do what we can, and sometimes it won't, because it's beyond us. And so we contribute, we don't not do anything, just because there's a big picture and I'm only a tiny little piece of stardust here, but... We, so we do because we care about the world. That's why we practice. But we don't do it with attachment, clinging, having to have it be a certain way. Because we know it's way bigger than that. And there's way more forces at work than my little agenda will ever be able to fix. So I just contribute. I can't not contribute. That's my karmic contribution to the planet because I care about it. So, of course, I guide myself because from my heart because I care without hanging on to having to have that be successful or not. So you have to have both. If you had only one or the other, you wouldn't be able to behave with caring, but without attachment. And these five aggregates, as they're called, these five parts are called the five aggregates of clinging. The five places where we identify with ourselves, where we hang on to me and I need this and don't want that, and it's the identifying and the the believing in and the being attached to and taking so seriously is the problem. The fact that we have these components which function and where certain decisions have to be made, seen in a big context, we don't cling. It's the clinging that's the problem. It's the believing in. The smallness of that that is the problem, seeing that it's just this coming together of all these faculties that keep sparking and functioning. We can be easier with it all. So the Buddha's all the teachings is to, to remind us of the ultimate view as well. That's so that puts everything, makes sense of everything when you have both realities respecting each other. and One doesn't obliterate the other. You don't go from the small to the big and you never have the small. You still have to be kind to your neighbor. You know, you still have to choose appropriately, but guided by a broader perspective. Thank you for the question. Yes, there's a hand in the back.
1: My question is um, between the two, step two and four, Um, where you say the second one is where you distinguish whether it's good or bad somehow, and then four is what you do about it. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if there is an assumption about the good or bad. Uh, Mm -hmm. Some things we take and we assume they might be good or bad, and yet they may not, Mm -hmm. and then that affects our behavior. Mm -hmm. And in making the assumption, there is already a, a doing Mm-hmm. in the decision-making as to whether it's good or mm-hmm. bad. Am I mm-hmm. making sense? Mm-hmm. The second one, Vedna, actually isn't,
0: the Buddha doesn't use the word good or bad. He uses pleasant or unpleasant. And that's significantly different. Because if it's pleasant, it doesn't mean to say it's good. You know, like it may actually be indulgent, or maybe, you know, as someone was saying, like too many calories or whatever. Um, so it's pleasant or uh, unpleasant. That's where we get so caught in Craving and aversion. The number one behaviors which cause us trouble are the wanting or the not wanting. I mean, when you get to the Buddhist teachings of the Four Noble Truths, First Noble Truth, the reason we struggle is because we want. Second, and what makes that wanting or the opposite thing, the opposite of wanting, aversion, is pleasant or unpleasant of everything. So it's like right up front, keep noticing it. But what you said was about whether things are good or bad things. To take something pleasant or unpleasant is one thing, but to make it good or bad is absolutely an assumption. It's a value judgment. And sometimes we're correct in our value judgments and our assessments. And sometimes we're wise and we can discriminate healthily. And oftentimes we don't have enough information. And so what appears to us as being good, we actually aren't seeing. The whole deal or what seems bad. We will put out of our heart because it seems bad because we don't actually understand why what's going on. If you say it's behavior, you know, there's no compassion because there's no understanding because we don't have enough information.
1: So the pleasant and unpleasant is more a physical reaction that you're referring to. It's kind of
0: automatic. It's a huge topic, the whole topic of Vedna, pleasant or unpleasant. I know Andrea Fella loves this topic and she's ta- I've heard her speak a couple of times about it, so I'm sure she's talked to you here about it. It's really an interesting big area to explore for yourself because even that changes all the time, like it isn't an absolute. So if you have an experience that you may experience as pleasant, when you look really closely, you begin to realize enough already. You know, It's not so pleasant, like I thought it was pleasant, but actually it's really exhausting. For instance, so uh, this just makes me think of this, doing um, uh, intensive meditation practice and getting very, very concentrated, the mind gets very, very quiet and very calm. And there are called jhanas, experiences of absorption, which have levels of calm. And initially, when the mind is initially concentrated, relatively concentrated, there's a feeling of thrill and rapture and pleasure and sort of like loveliness and People experience it in different kind of ways. But as one gets quieter and more concentrated, the pleasure of the rapture gets irritating. And it's actually more pleasant to not have so much pleasant (laughs) because (laughs) it's karma. And so equanimity, cool, quiet is more utterly, ultimately more pleasant than what we thought of as pleasurable to begin with for it just as an example and so what it isn't like inherently pleasant and that's always the case look at it closely and see and for instance Ute will say in everything that's pleasant there's seeds of dukkha because as soon as something is seen as pleasant it sets up this oh I've got to have it oh I want it oh I like it oh I'm good or something which in itself is actually a constricted way and so it's a, it's a huge area of exploration all of this the subtlety that we mostly don't pay attention to because we're just in such a gross level is fascinating. All of it's fascinating to, to explore. But this is a huge area itself. People just spend a long time just focusing on pleasant, unpleasant or neutral in their experience and unpacking that and seeing how that is always changing. And its appearance is one thing and the actual experience is different and it changes and so on and so forth. So there's just way more. We can't, we can't say this is how it is. It isn't that you, you're asking me to say this is how it is because it's experiential and in a moment it's different, it's different, there's more to it. Then you begin to see this then it changes into this. It's like a river. The whole thing is this crazy river all the time moving. The point of all of these teachings are to help us be interested in looking. And when we really look, we start getting, we start taking apart what we got trapped by initially. The real point is to keep exploring, not to kind of figure out and then say, this is how it is. It's never like that. It's not that kind of life isn't like that. that that's a, we fool ourselves into thinking, if I can figure it out, explain it all, make sense of it all, then I'll be fine. Then I'll know what Buddhism's all about. And then I'll be a Buddhist and I'll be free. But it isn't like that at all. It's experiential, momentary, investigative curiosity. What is this? And it turns out to be not, it's more like, oh, it's not this, it's not this, oh, it's not that at all. Oh, my goodness. Instead of, oh, it's this, it's this, it's this. You don't start getting it. You, you, it's the whole thing is letting go, more and more letting go. Letting go of assumption, belief, opinion, attachment. It's, it's, it all becomes more and more fluid the more we see. So that's the point of the whole thing. It's easy for me to answer like that, too, then you can't pin
1: me. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah.
0: Yes. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. I hope to see you again sometime somewhere.